All right, we're going to talk about money this week. And it's not lost on me how funny that is that we got stimulus checks earlier this week. If you've been around here, you know that the way we do things is we go verse by verse through scripture. And so I didn't know anything about stimulus checks. I started uh, in in Luke 1 and we got here to Luke 12, uh, starting in verse 13. And it happens to be on that week. So I think God has a sense of humor. Uh, You know, I've been seeing uh, pictures on the internet of how Walmart decided that uh, their biggest and best TVs need to be $1,400 this week. And they're on sale, you know, because we're getting those $1,400 checks. So the stimulus, uh, stimulus, I won't get into how I feel about all that. But anyway, the uh, the checks don't have anything to do with me uh, talking about money. The fact that we're talking about money is because we came to it in the section of scripture we're in. Now, uh There's absolutely no question that we live in the richest society to ever exist on the planet. Uh, This is not to say there's not poverty around us, because we all know there is. But many of the poor among us are fat and have cell phones, right? Uh, That is not the kind of poor that has been poor throughout history. (laughs) Throughout history, you didn't have to not have enough money to join Weight Watchers. But you didn't have enough money to eat, okay? And so even the poor in our country have everything they need for the most part. We are such a rich society that even the poorest among us have have weight control problems. And this is not, like I said, the concept of poverty that is in other countries around the world and that historically has been the case. You know, we get it into our heads that our kids need all the latest and greatest toys and clothes. And I've done that, too. I've I've said, well, I'm going to use this money, but it's not selfish because it's for my kids. Right. And so sometimes we can, if we're not careful, indoctrinate our kids into being materialists because we treat them that way. We say, well, I'm not going to do so-and-so, but I am going to use this money for my kid because they've got to have the latest and greatest toys clothes, all this stuff. And if we're not careful, we teach them to be little materialists. If having a, you know, is having a nice car or other nice stuff wrong? Now you probably expect me to say no, but instead I'm going to say it depends. Priorities is the key. It's what comes first. You know, Malachi 3.10, uh, that, that small group of guys and ladies who are going through and, and kind of forming a repeatable discipleship pattern, we are memorizing Scripture. And one of the things we're memorizing is Malachi 3.10. It says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, this is bad that I can't even read it when I was supposed to memorize it, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now most of us put God to the test all right, but we don't put him to the test in this one single area where God said, Put me to the test. I mean, can you believe God, who is not lacking any resource? is not lacking any knowledge, is not lacking anything, and can provide everything for us anytime he chooses, says, bring me what's first, give to me what's mine, and put me to the test. 
Nowhere else in scripture that I have ever found does God say, put me to the test. But he says, put me to the test and see if I won't provide for you. Now, that's a pretty amazing challenge right there. Why don't we do it? The simple answer, and and we all know it, is because we don't trust him with our money. Now, some of us do. Some of us are doing exactly what we're supposed to do. And if you are, that's awesome. But for those of us who are not, I want to encourage you to just think through it. To think, if God says, test me and see if I don't bless you, is he going to fail that test? Is he limited somehow? Is he limited in his power? Is he limited in his wealth? What could possibly make him unable to do what he says he's going to do? Now, some of us trust him with our immortal souls, but not our money. I got to ask why. Again, the answer is simple and obvious if we want to look at what it actually is. And that is that we treasure our money and our comfort in this life more than our souls. Now, that is so messed up that I hope it's not actually the case. Okay, I hope instead the problem is that many of us have been lulled into the foolishness of this world And we can be warned, awakened, roused from our foolishness by the Word of God. So that's why I'm going to talk about it. Um, Why is money such a big deal? I went to our stewardship committee the other day, our team, and I said, Hey guys, I would like for you to work on some stuff. And I asked them three things to work on. And one of the things I asked them to work on was to encourage our people to give for their sake, for the sake of the spiritual lives of our people. Uh, as far as I know, we're fine budget-wise. I don't get paid on commission. You know, it's not like I'm going to make more money if we bring in more money. <laughs> it's not about that. It is about the individual spiritual lives of you personally sitting in the pew. So when churches come to you and appeal to you based on a need, there's nothing wrong with that because churches need money. They need money to pay the electric bill and to do ministry and all that kind of stuff. But that's not what we're talking about, what we're talking today. We're saying it's, it's based on need, but it's your need in your spiritual life to put things in the proper priority. It's a big deal because in Luke twelve thirty four, Jesus is going to say when we get there, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is why it matters. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now for us to really understand this, we're going to have to put away our pride. We're going to have to put away our defensiveness. Okay, guys? When people start talking to me about Uh, money, or children, my children, (laughs) or my money, or my, uh, you know, writing, things like that that are very personal to you. If it's critical, you're going to be defensive. It's in our nature, okay? We don't want other people meddling where they don't need to meddle. We're going to have to put away our defensiveness because God gets to meddle wherever he wants to. And I'm not going to make up stuff. I'm going to explain this parable that Jesus says, okay? So put away any defensiveness and we're going to think maturely. We'll have to see that money matters are really and truly fundamentally heart matters. All right. Are you submitted to God? 
Are you ready to conform your life to the Word of God? If so, let's read this passage together. Starting in verse 13 of Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, this parable isn't hard to understand, is it? It's easy to understand. It's a lot harder to put the understanding into practice. It's kind of like love your enemies, right? Easy concept, hard to pull off. So let's set the stage for this parable. If you can recall back to last week, Jesus was explaining the dangers of and how to avoid hypocrisy. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he taught us a lesson about how to avoid hypocrisy. And uh, see last week's sermon if you forgot it. So have you ever, any of you who have ever taught or had children... Have you ever been trying to teach and then somebody comes up with a question and you know they weren't, I mean, they were asleep. They weren't paying any attention to what you were saying. Kat was driving around with some kids she used to babysit and a cop pulled her over and said, hey, the kids aren't buckled in their their seats. And actually they were, but they were squirming around and turning around and looking at the cop car because that was interesting. (laughs) And so they were in their seats and they were buckled, but they had squirmed around to where the cop was concerned for them. And so the policeman was very nice and he explained to him, guys, you, you not only have to stay in your seat, you have to turn around and face forward because anything else is not safe. And if you were in a wreck and he goes through this whole spiel and, uh, then the cop says, okay, y'all have a good day and leaves. And Kat said, okay, were you guys paying attention? And the little boy said, him had it a gun. <laughs> and she said, well, yeah, but did you pay attention to what he said? He said, him had it a gun. <laughs> it was lost on him, right? The story about sitting in your seat correctly. Um, that must have been how Jesus felt right here, because he's talking about how to avoid hypocrisy. And this clown raises up and goes, hey, man. Uh, would you tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me? Had nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about. Um, when I'm up here pouring out my heart and I see somebody, they don't glance at their watch. They, they go like this and then they go and they put it down. <laughs> Did y'all know, y'all know people do that? And uh, I'm thinking, oh man, come on, aren't, aren't we listening to what we're actually saying instead of worrying about what time lunch is? So, when people aren't paying attention to you, Jesus had to be frustrated. And uh, he didn't seem to welcome the thing very much because after this guy asked him the question, Jesus said in verse 14, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? But Jesus was not one to waste a teaching opportunity. So he said to them, take care and be on your guard 
against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, what is covetousness? That's not a a word we use very often. It is basically greediness, but with the possible nuance of greed for other people's stuff. So being covetous means that you're greedy, but it also may mean that you're greedy because you're enticed to see other people's things and, and think you need those things. I mean, that's how we market, right? We, we show on TV things that you don't have that, man, you deserve, right? And we get covetousness. Uh, Merriam-Webster says covetousness is someone who is marked by an inordinate desire for wealth and possessions or for another, another person's possessions. So Jesus says, don't be greedy. Now that goes against our nature and our training. You know, we talk about nature versus nurture. Well, we're nature, by nature we're greedy, and we're nurtured to become greedy as we grow up. Do you have to teach your kids not to share? I mean, no. We come out of the womb ready to be greedy. You have to work through the Word of God and the Spirit of God to work greediness and covetousness out of your nature. When my kids were little, they'd be starving and then they'd eat three bites of something, and then they'd be good for 20 minutes until they were starving again. That became annoying, like it does for all parents. And so I discovered uh, that if I would make them compete for a single food source, (laughs) that they would eat. Now, I didn't encourage them overeating or uh, eating too frequently or anything like that, but what I did discourage was them saying, I'm starving, give me something to eat, and then 20 minutes later be starving again because they didn't actually eat what it was. They knew that their siblings would get their portion of the food if they didn't get in there and compete, right? So maybe it sounds uh, like I was a biology major in school, and I was. <laughs> but I, I gave them one common food source and let them compete for it, because that way they would go ahead and eat. <clears throat> we want our fair share of everything, and we do even when we're little kids. And so if you give them one, uh, you know, one plate of french fries, and you say, hey guys, this is, this is your food, they're going to eat it, and they're going to compete with one another. We want our fair share. I mean, how many times have you heard politicians saying rich people need to pay their fair share in taxes? Uh, You know, what is the fair share for rich people? Well, enough that the politicians' constituents don't have to work. You know, that's how much it is. Everybody wants their fair share of everybody else's stuff. Now, the problem with that is greedy people aren't really morally fit to figure out what anybody's fair share is. So let's look. At the last part of verse 15, Jesus says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What's your life about? Is it about your stuff? Is it about your family? Is it about your business? Is it about your ego? Is it about your position? Or is your life about your identity in Christ and about the mission that he gave you? Guys, one of the things that is so harmful about thinking compartmentally about there being professional clergy. Now, I'm glad there is professional clergy. I'm glad some people have the time and the training to go uh, get an education so they know a lot about how to get into the Scripture Uh, They're given the time during the week to soak in and meditate in the scripture. Those are all good practices. But we get in our heads that 
the professional clergyman's job is to be concerned about the things of God and the kingdom of heaven. And that's his number one priority because it's his vocation. But if your vocation is doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, we think that that's what your main focus needs to be on. It's just not true, guys. Our vocation is how we make money. That's it. But the goal of our life has to be the advancement of the kingdom of God, regardless of who signs your paychecks. You know, the world tells us um, that the guy who dies with the most toys wins. (laughs) The world is dead wrong. You can't take the toys with you. What can you take with you? The souls of men and women that you win to the Lord, you can take with you. And I wouldn't I wouldn't talk about people winning souls if the Bible didn't talk about it. (laughs) But the Bible does talk about it. Now we know that it's not us that can call people to repentance in, in an effective way. We know that the Holy Spirit has to do that for men and women to actually repent and have faith and believe, right? But nevertheless, the Bible talks about people winning souls. It means that we are the ones who testify of the gospel. We can store up treasure in heaven. Now you may say, well, how do we do that? Rewards come through obedience. The Bible talks about rewards for the saints. We are to live in such a way that we are rewarded in heaven. And we're to invest our money in the kingdom. You can't take your money with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. All right, let's get into the parable. In verse 16, Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Well, who made that man's land produce plentifully? Right? God did. Who gave you the things that you treasure? Who gave you the job you have? Well, God did. Who gave you the mind and body you use to make money? God did. God provided for this rich man. He provided generously and plentifully for him. We have to realize the reason we have what we have is that God provided us the ability and the opportunity to make money. He could take that away tomorrow if he chose to. So don't get all proud and forget the source of your blessing. Uh, God resists the proud. Look with me at this verse. It's, uh, it's in Acts, which I've read through a couple of times recently. Acts chapter 12 says this in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. That must have been a really, really good speech. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. (laughs) Okay, God doesn't like pride. He doesn't like for us to take credit for things for which credit is due to him. It's great to work hard and save wisely. But remember, God is the source of your stuff. Considering what God, that God is the source of your wealth, the next question is, what will you do with the wealth that God has entrusted you? Verse 17 says, And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, what could could his answers have been, and this would have turned out to not be a destructive, a parable of of doom and destruction? He could have given it to God. Uh, You know, like I said, the church needs money in order to function. The more money it has, the more it can do. Sometimes churches are foolish and just kind of hoard God's money. 
and sit on ministry resources instead of doing ministry. But expansion takes money. Church plants take money. The rich man could have given his money to God and he wouldn't have squandered it. He could have sent his treasure on ahead of him. John MacArthur told a story of a guy who was, they were doing a, a cruise, a Bible study cruise, and John MacArthur was on there. And uh, a guy came up to him, and he was a really, really wealthy guy. And he said to John, he said, I want to give what I've saved for retirement to your ministry. Um, he was his late 50s. And he said, I don't need to retire. I'm good at making money. I make a lot of money. Uh, so I will trust that God will take care of me and I'm going to give my retirement to you. My wife and I have talked about this and we want to do this. We want to support your ministry. Well, he's in his late 50s. He's super rich. They're on a cruise. Life is good. The next day, this guy had a heart attack and it didn't kill him right away, but it did uh, make it where he couldn't, they couldn't finish the cruise. He had to be airlifted off there and taken to a hospital and within two or three days, the guy was dead, had no idea that anything was wrong with him. Now, can you imagine what God said to him? Instead of saying, fool, this day you, your life will be required of you. He said, you are wise because this day your life was required of you. He prioritized the kingdom of God first. Had no idea he needed to do it right then, but he did because that's what God had called him to. And he said, look, I trust God. Now, I'm not saying we should all invest our retirement in the church. I am saying we need to do what God specifically tells each and every one of us to do. So this guy who was trying to figure out what to do with his extra stuff, he could have given it to God. He also could have given it to the needy. There are people all around you with genuine needs. There are people in other countries who are in true and desperate poverty to the point they don't have food or clean water. Now, you can give it to places like Samaritan's Purse that will use your money wisely to alleviate suffering. But this guy, he wasn't thinking about God. He wasn't thinking about his fellow man. And there's one more thing he forgot, and that was his own mortality. Luke 12, 18 and 19. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So he wasn't thinking about God, wasn't thinking about anybody else. And the other thing he forgot to his detriment was that he's not going to live forever. He can't relax and just eat, drink, and be merry. Because one of these days, life is over and he has to deal with God. There's nothing wrong with saving money. Nothing wrong with it. But there's plenty wrong with saving what you should be giving to God. See, that's where the problem is. It's all about priorities. If you save money, great. I used Before I went into ministry, I was a financial planner. I would talk to people about how to save money and how to invest for retirement. And, and that's wisdom. You do that. But you don't do it with money that ought to be going to God. Also, there's plenty wrong with using for yourself and your family what you should be giving to God. Nothing wrong with using your money. Just don't use what you should be giving to God. Now, if you're awake and paying attention, <laughs> this seems really weird because it's absolutely countercultural. It's true, though. 
People come up with amazing ways to rob God and feel justified. I have heard them all throughout my ministry. I've heard them in my financial planning years as well. Uh, What they'll say is, I don't like everything about how the church uses my money, so I'll withhold my tithe. Have you ever heard that, withhold my tithe? Uh, People say that piously. And what they mean is, I want to rob God without my conscience bothering me, so I'm going to blame other people. Uh, That was the thing that happened at the first church where I served. Folks were mad at the pastor, um, and that was not me, uh, but they were mad at the pastor, and so they were like, I'm going to withhold my tithe. And I said, guys, you don't tithe to the pastor. You tithe to God and to the church. Now, if you feel like you can't serve the Lord here, you need to move somewhere else. But withholding your tithe, don't do that. (laughs) You're messing with God at that point, and you don't want to do that. Or sometimes folks will say, you know, I have too many expenses right now and I can't possibly give a tenth or more to God. The translation of that honestly, really brutally honestly is, I live above my means and I'm not about to change that. I did financial counseling with a pastor one time who I went to his house. He had a nice house, and that's great. I'm all for pastors having a nice house. He had a couple of brand new pickups in the, in the driveway, and that's great if God blesses you that way. But when I went in, I, I would always ask people, what is your priority for this meeting? What do you want to be able to accomplish after meeting with me? And he said, well, I want to get to where I can tithe. You know, and my first thought was, I'm really glad I don't go to your church. Because if, his, if he couldn't take care of that, then I didn't want him telling me what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to live and what I was supposed to do with my money. So there's another thing that people would tell me when I was doing financial planning. They'd say, I have a lot of debt, and to be a good steward of my money, see, this is, how, this is a cool spin you put on it. To be a good steward of my money, I should get out of debt, and then I'll tithe. Now, the translation, honestly, is I bought stuff I couldn't afford, and now I'll just rob God to get out of the hole, right? That's really what that means. So the rich man in the parable forgot about God, forgot about fellow man, and forgot that he was going to die one day. In verse 20, it says, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? If you think this life is all there is, then get all you can. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. If you know that God and eternity are real, then you got to live with a different set of priorities from the world. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? (laughs) I was visiting one of our ladies in the nursing home who has since passed away, but she was there with an open Bible. And she said, would you read to me? And I said, yeah, of course I'd read to you. She hands me the Bible, and it's open to Ecclesiastes. And I said, well, do you want me to read this or something else? He said, I want you to read that. I said, okay. (laughs) So I started reading Ecclesiastes. It's not the most encouraging part of Scripture. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. If you love money, you'll never have enough to be satisfied. If you love God, He will always satisfy you. Paul learned the secret of contentment. 
Uh, this is a verse that everybody knows, and few people, it seems, know the context. So we're going to learn the context of this wonderful verse. Philippians four ten through 13 says this. Now this is Paul talking. And he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right. So if I went to fight Mike Tyson and I said, I can do all things through God who strengthens me, then in, you know, five minutes later when I'm in heaven, God would say, dude, you should have read that in context. It's not what I was saying. Uh, what he's saying is Paul is saying, I can be satisfied in Christ in whatever my situation is, whether I have a lot of money, whether I have no money, whether I have a lot of food, whether I have no food, I can be satisfied and content because I have all of God. So the next question is, where will you invest your money? Luke twelve twenty one says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So where will you invest? Will you invest in this world? Or the world to come. Now there's nothing wrong with investing in this world unless you fail to be rich toward God. So what do we do? We give to God first. Proverbs 3 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce. Guys, I guarantee if you wait to give God your leftovers, there won't be any leftovers. I also guarantee that if you give to God first what he says is his, then either he's lying to you in Malachi and he can't actually provide, okay? And none of us want to be that dumb to say that. Or he's not lying to you and he can actually provide. Exodus thirty four twenty six says this, The best of the first fruits, first fruits, of your ground, you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. Because that's just a bad thing to do. It's all throughout the Old Testament. <laughs> Randomly, you'll see, don't be boiling goats in their, in their mother's milk. I don't know why. But anyway, it says, give God the first fruits. Deuteronomy 26.2, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land, and the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. If you do what is right with your money, you will be controlling it rather than it controlling you. Money is a blessing to be used, not a master to be obeyed. The only way any of this makes sense to you is if you are a disciple of Christ. <laughs> Otherwise, you're like, ah, oh, this dude wants more money for the church. Um, if we had an endowment, if, if somebody fabulously wealthy gave us a billion dollars in the bank, I would preach the same thing, I promise you. Because it's for you, it's not for the church. It's for you that you personally need to obey God with your money. Because if you don't, that will become your God. 
And you got a huge problem there. So all I can do is tell you it's not about the budget. It's about your spiritual life. To begin that spiritual life, we have to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Uh, In case there's somebody here who is not yet saved, let me tell you. Guys, we, uh, we got a problem with a holy God in that we sinned, we rebelled. Well, we couldn't fix that. You know, if you go throw a bottle of ink on a, on a wedding dress, you're not going to be able to undo the damage. We can't make ourselves perfect again. So what God did to solve our problem was he sent Jesus to live the perfect life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, and then he'll trade places with us. We'll take the sin that was ours and he'll move that to Jesus' account, which he paid for on the cross. And he'll take Christ's perfect righteousness and move that to our account. And if we come to God in repentance, and really that means unconditional surrender. And when I talk to folks and I say unconditional surrender, sometimes they think, cool. Well, except for, you know, my money. (laughs) No, unconditional surrender then we've come in repentance and then we place our faith in what Jesus did for us and in our place. And then we can be saved. We can be reconciled to God. So if you're here today and you say, well, every time I go to church, they talk about money. Well, then you've only been to church, you know, twice since I've been preaching, okay? (laughs) Because it's not normally what we talk about. It's just what we talk about when we come to it in the passage. But it's really an important part of our relationship to God. Because it can get askew really quickly. So guys, I I pray that you'll think about what we've talked about. You'll prioritize correctly. And if you already are, that's great. Teach your kids to. Teach your grandkids to. Because I'm telling you, when you're 30 or 40, it's a lot harder to learn this lesson than when you're 15 or 16 and you get your first paycheck. 